The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Where you come from, have you ever heard of a place called Sanctuary? You know about Sanctuary? It's what we're searching for. Then you don't know where it is? No. Do you? That's why I came here. To reach Sanctuary. Is it far? We have a vehicle. We can take you. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, February 9th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. And welcome to our show today, where for the first time in 2017, we are joined again by our guest, Salim Mansour, Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science. Welcome to the new year, Salim. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you. Well, before we get our conversation underway today, we should remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of Just Right's past broadcasts. Well, Salim, the last time we spoke was just after Trump's election. The hatred of Trump has not let up a bit. In fact, the left, you know, they haven't even really accepted the victory. There has, it just hasn't stopped. It keeps going as though the election were still in process. And I liked what you said. You said, you said the left has gone full Monty on its Trump derangement syndrome. Is, is that something you still see going to be a problem over four years coming? Yes. I mean, um, the left has gone, uh, the Democratic Party and its uh, supporters have gone uh, full Monty trying to derail Trump administration to delegitimize Trump presidency. And look, it is only two and a half weeks since uh, he was inaugurated on January 20th. And it has been a relentless, unremitting pushback by just about all the forces that Trump defeated during the election, uh, the media, the Democratic Party, and those groups uh, that are sown not to give Trump any chance to uh, go ahead with his policy. Uh, In my view, all of this was predictable. The establishment, and this is just right across, Democratic, Republican, academia, media, uh, all the various institutions in in the United States uh, have been completely hostile to the very idea that the government of the United States is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that is what uh, Trump in his inaugural address said. I mean, this was a remarkable statement. Those of you who uh, have followed Trump's um, inaugural address, he said, this is not a transfer of power from one party to another party. This is a transfer of power from the party to the people. He also said in that inauguration speech, which struck me, contrary to John F. Kennedy's uh, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, he said the government is a servant of the people. Exactly. Which is almost the exact opposite of a JFK type of sacrifice yourself for the country, meaning the government, 
rather than the government being your servant. Exactly. The rights of the government come from the people. It is not the other way around that the government bequeaths to the people their right. I mean, this was against some of the issues that, you know, we have talked about in terms of constitution. And let me once again put it back on the table as we proceed forward. A number of things that have happened in this two and a half week, and the most significant one, I would say, uh, which has long-term consequences will be, and which is why even those within the Republican Party and the Never Trump movement and the conservative better be careful of what they say uh, and acknowledge uh, what has happened. That is, the one thing that the Trump promised that he would deliver if he's elected would be a just to the Supreme Court to replace Justice uh, Antonian Scalia, who passed away last year, would be a judge in the model of Justice Scalia. And that's what he has nominated. And it's quite likely that he will nominate more. So this nomination, once it goes through, will put the court back into a 5-4 conservative uh, liberal uh, split that exists, and if he gets more opportunity. But the core issue here that I would put on the table is that by nominating Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, to the Supreme Court, what we find is that Trump selected a person who places the idea of limited government and freedom as the number one issue in his legal philosophy. That is the signature item of Justice Gorsuch's judgment so far and where he is in Colorado has been about defending individual rights and pushing back a government by fiat, that is by executive mm -hmm. or, or order. Yes, as a matter of fact, he came out against the Chevron Doctrine, which basically said that you should uh, err on the side of the administration agencies rather That's than right. on the Constitution or the people. Exactly. And so, yes, he's very much a, a person who would keep, uh, ironically, a president in check. Precisely, precisely. And so it goes back again to that philosophical principle where so many people have been confused during this primary season and leading up to the election and who Trump is. For Trump, the issue is, as is the Constitution, constitutional provision, that the fundamental rights do not flow from the Constitution. The fundamental rights, for instance, freedom of speech, the fundamental rights of liberty are ones that exist prior to the Constitution, that precedes the Constitution, the unalienable rights of the people, which is the Declaration of Independence, the unalienable rights of the people, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, this is naturally given or God-given in the, in the words of Jefferson. And the Constitution is the document, is the social contract that people write to protect those rights. Now, you may know the number of the amendment that says that the enumeration of these rights does not mean that there are not rights retained by the people. I forget exactly. the particular clause or, or amendment. A anything that is not stated in those those first 10 amendments mean that the rights precede and exist exactly. beyond it. It's only there. In fact, the First Amendment is so vital to understand, as the Second Amendment and Third Amendment, but First Amendment, that, that the government shall not legislate anything that is going to curb the freedom, freedom or abridge the freedom. 
So that means the government has no right to step in. Mm-hmm. You know, the way the government exercises the right, that will be challenged by the people if those rights are being taken away from them. Is that what they mean when they call him an originalist? Precisely. Mm-hmm. Precisely, because the whole argument of the constitutional theory on the other side is that the Constitution is a living document. It simply evolves, i.e., the justices and the legislatures can say whatever they want to say and therefore determine what the people will do or can do or how they exist. Take the Canadian Constitution, you know. Do our rights precede the Constitution? The no, John- Clause 1 basically negates all of our rights in our so Constitution. There it is. Yeah, you have these rights so that so as long as we so, say you do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now, that, what, he's also been called a textualist. Doesn't that contradict the originalist thing? A textualist is a judge who looks strictly at the text and ignores the so-called intent of the designers. Well, in my reading, these are these are terms not in contradiction. Originalist no? goes back to the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, textualist is what the founding fathers put together with the the Federalist Papers. And and you look at the text and you stick to this text. But you do not infer intent, is what you do. Yeah, you do not create out of it anything uh-huh. new. So he sounds like a great choice. Precisely, and I think that is going to shape the Trump administration looking down on the way. And we can take any number of items now in this two and a half week. Uh, the pandemonium on the on the left and on the Democratic Party is that Trump has come full speed and walked ahead. I mean, you know, whatever he said during his campaign, he's out to deliver. Repeal of Obamacare. Cutting back taxes, limited government. Reduced immigration. Uh, immigration, the number one issue. We might want to talk about immigration in some detail. No, in my view, immigration is the most explosive issue today in the Western world and, and in the United States. And I would say now that, now that the Trump is president, mm-hmm. inauguration is happening, happening, and we're looking down the road, and of course the pandemonium over his executive order banning the seven countries, and we might want to talk about that, that of all the issues that made Trump win the nomination and eventually the presidency, apart from the domestic economy, jobs and growth, was immigration. The issue of building the wall and keeping America secure and protected. I had an interesting essay brought to my attention, written by Michael Hurd, who thinks that the anti-Trump reaction might be even bigger than that. He sees, sees it as an irrational fear of freedom in a post he did on February 4th. And he suggests that there is an irrational fear of individual liberties widespread among progressives and that they collapse into fear and despair at the possibility that people make decisions for themselves and place an irrational level of trust in bureaucrats and career politicians. You think there's a deeper psychological thing behind the movement against Trump, that there is almost like we've had a generation or two of very dependent-oriented people on their governments and they can't see this life of individuality that, that, that their ancestors... Life of freedom. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it is very interesting that you're reading Michael Hurd. Michael Hurd is a psychologist by profession mm-hmm. and so he has... Dr. Hurd, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, practicing doctor. Well, it was so just he, brought to my attention. I thought yeah, it was an interesting yeah. observation. So, uh, I, I think he's pretty much right. I think there is a, an abiding fear in just about every one of us of being free and therefore being responsible for what we do and how we live. 
because freedom doesn't mean licentiousness. Freedom means responsibility and accountability. And in a society which is which over the last 50 years the tendency has been and now it has become more magnified with the collapse of the Soviet Union because so long the Soviet Union was there there was a counterpoint so we could point out look at it you know that state the totalitarian state with that gone the tendency in the West has been to be- make the state a much more of a nanny state or what technically would be called an administrative state. That is a state that basically interferes and looks after the society, the individual, and and so on. And what Trump is doing is going back to, and what the whole Trump's campaign was all about, uh, was going back to the original principles of the American Republic, which is that... Uh, the individual is free to live his life according to the way he or she wants and live a responsible life. It is not the business of the government to come and abridge his or her freedom. Apparently, except when it comes to uh, protectionist trade, which I disagree with Trump on. Uh, a protection of what? His protectionism. Oh. For, for example, if I was an American businessman, I wanted to uh, farm out my my employees to another country, uh, Trump would say that, no, you cannot do that as an individual. You must uh, serve your neighbors first by hiring them first. I totally disagree with that. Well, I uh, I would say that this is not a dogmatic position of Trump. And the difference between what you say and how I see Trump is, again, a source of adjusting to the situation. So to put it in context, what he's talking about here is we have a result of almost 25 years or three decades of free trade that was sold and what free trade has done and this is what the election was all about was to deindustrialize the heartland of america and so his promise was that you know we're going to fix this problem and part of the fixing of the problem is again you come back to the question of freedom and responsibility american businessmen making profit making investment, and therefore you make investment is to get a return, uh, also have certain responsibility. And so, you know, whether it is clean water, clean air, you know, uh, uh, having employment in the country and not shipping it off abroad, there is, a, there is a question of checks and balances. And I think when Trump is talking about, when he said that, you know, uh, he put out the notice that if you're going to take away business from America, then you be, better be prepared for a 30% tariff rate. And that's that's exactly what you're objecting to. And uh, I still I, object I, to it. <laughs> I, 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 I think we come back to the classical debate on this matter. You know, it goes all the way back to Adam Smith, you know, and, and the wealth of nations. I think it's a debate and, about and, freedom. And, and mercantilism. Yes, freedom. These were, we, we were talking about freedom. We are not talking about freedom as anarchy. We're talking about freedom no, in a I'm context. I'm not suggesting anarchy. I'm just suggesting that a person should be free to make the choices that he or she needs to make in order to survive and prosper. And if that means that I farm out my call center to India rather than Tennessee, then that's my choice, and yes, I should be able to do it freely. But he's saying no, you can't. Yes, he's saying no for this particular moment in time. In other words, so, he's buying votes, if you ask me. Uh, well, you can put it in that way, but that's because there is politics also. And politics is about trying to reconcile many of the irreconcilable 
So here we go back to again the philosophical issue. Can you be completely consistent and get ahead? Because life is far beyond being consistent. There are all sorts of inconsistencies that you have to pull together. Your Honor, we've had meetings with the Environmental Protection Agency. They signed off on this already. With all due respect, the EPA gets steamrolled by the administration all the time. No matter what anyone proposes these days, there's always somebody somewhere who jumps up and screams, whoa, the environment. Now there's a word, Your Honor, a very simple word that describes what my client is trying to do here. Please don't let the word be progress. How about people? People. Yes. We are trying to invest in the future of people. Creating jobs in a time of unemployment. We're talking about over 1,000 jobs. We're talking about benefiting people below the poverty line. We are talking about people hoping to educate their children, afford medical coverage, feed their families, basic human needs. This man wants to put all that on hold because it inconveniences a fish. And if Donald does win, it'll be awkward at the annual President's Day photo when all the former presidents gather at the White House, and not just with Bill. How is Barack going to get past the Muslim ban? You know, Salim, a couple of shows ago, um, we did a segment where I looked at the inaugural speech of Trump, compared it to the speeches of uh, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, George Washington, and I found him to be uh, very presidential. And that's what we call the show, a very presidential Donald J. Trump. Now, recently, we were just talking about his choice for uh, Supreme Court judge. Um, recently, the, the judge that put a hold on the immigration order of uh, President Trump, James Robart, um, Trump put out a tweet saying that he was a so-called judge and it was a ridiculous decision. That, to me, does not sound very presidential in its language. Do you, do you think that Trump should rein in this kind of knee-jerk in, in name-calling? In fact, I heard a, a, a radio announcer say that Trump should be impeached for talking about the judge. <laughs> well, like that's that, just right? silly. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the kind of reactions you're getting. Yeah, um, uh, I think what is happening, in fact, not, not only you find it odd or unacceptable, the Republican leadership went on air on this matter when they were asked on Sunday talk shows about the comment, and they distanced themselves. Uh, Paul Ryan distanced himself from it. Uh, the House Speaker, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell distanced himself well, from it. Well, it's disrespectful. And, and, yeah, so um, well, fair enough. I mean, you know, so this has been done. So the question uh, that it then uh, hangs on uh, is, why is Trump doing this? And what is the public reaction on this matter? My view of the uh, of the whole issue is that Trump and his people know, but particularly Trump, because his people are picked up by Trump, that the media and just about all the forces are not going to give him a breather. They're out to derail him and push him back. Okay. And I think we will agree on that. And and so, uh, and we can give you evidence of it. And so what Trump has decided, he is not going to be what George W. Bush was, that you can unleash upon George W. Bush 
the whole world. I mean, uh, Harry Reid, who was then the Senate Majority Leader, called uh, George Bush's war on Iraq lost in 2004 and dumped upon him, and George Bush never pushed back. Trump has decided that he will not be a patsy or whatever the correct term is, that if the media are going to... Uh, attack him, that is the fake news, he is going to push back. He's not going to stand. So here we have the question, for instance, the day he was being inaugurated, Time magazine ran with the story that Trump had removed the bust of Martin Luther King from the Oval Office. Remember, it was uh, Obama who removed the bust of Winston Churchill, Churchill, and, and Trump brought it back. We now know Trump's people showed it, that the Martin Luther bust is there. Yes. So you can go line item by line item that there has been a concerted effort to, again, to repeat myself, delegitimize Trump, and Trump is going to push back. So where does this judge come in? The judge overstepped his bound. He's a law district judge. The Constitution is very clear on the matter of what are the responsibility in the separation of power when it comes to national security issue and foreign policy. And Trump's executive order on banning coming for 90 days and 120 days, people from the seven countries that he has mentioned, and we can go into get rid of, were all based upon statutory law and constitutional separation of power I with totally all agree the with precedent. You. Totally agree with you. I've read it myself, and he's perfectly within precisely, his bounds sir, to do that. Precisely. So here it is. Here's a guy who's sitting there who's in an appointed position, you know, in a lower court, and the left wing is running with this say that the con- that and the media that Trump is unconstitutional. That's where Trump is hitting back because he knows his 140 letter tweet is going to go wildfire, you know, and that's what it is. He's not going to sleep through these things. And that's it. By the way, this happened with, remember, the Mexican judge? Yes. You know, so that's what it is. You know, the left has always been cultural relativists or moral relativists. So for them, you know, they, they, they can make a point that America is no better than take whichever country around the world that you want, Venezuela, you know. So Trump is now turning around and saying, okay, that's how you want to talk about it? See, here it is. How can this judge, in this case the Washington judge, or in that case it was the Mexican origin judge, give a fair judgment? when these people are operating on the basis of ethnicity or on the basis of... of, Yeah, he's using the tactics of of, of the left against them. But the Constitution, as I suppose we can agree, the Constitution is not a matter of ideology. I would agree. So if that is the case, this judge... Unless it's a freedom ideology. this, (laughs) this This judge is making a case in putting a stay order, because look at it, that there was a parallel judge in Boston who didn't. Now, let's get over to Bill O'Reilly. In a recent interview on Fox TV with Donald Trump, Bill O'Reilly said, Putin is a killer, yeah. quote, unquote, That's which right. now, of course, Kremlin has asked for an apology. But it's Trump's response that got me. He said, there are a lot of killers. We've got a lot of killers. What? Do you, th- you, you think our country is so innocent? That, to me, is, on one hand, it's refreshing 
<laughs> because the United States has done a lot of things which are, are not above board. But on the second hand, it doesn't seem very presidential to denigrate your country's past actions, even though they may have been incorrect. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, denigrate, how is he denigrating it? Uh, By I saying think that his country is a, has been, has been know, uh, killing people. I mean, so, so, I mean, if you start now deconstructing that one phrase that he used, are we so innocent? Go back to the eight years of Obama administration with his drones. You know? <laughs> of course, yes. Uh, Maybe uh, that's who he's talking about. Precisely. Go back to, uh, I mean, during the entire primary season, his campaign was a direct attack on the Bush administration and the whole Iraq war, you know, that this was the silliest and dumbest piece of action. So, I mean, you know, apart from what he has talked about, $6 trillion that has been wasted and the loss of life, not only on the Iraqi side and the, and the uh, Middle Eastern side, but the American soldiers who have died. My point is uh, about this conversation that happened with Bill O'Reilly was Bill O'Reilly is simply another, he called George Will a hack over the, over the book uh, uh, about Reagan, and they went at each other, you know. And I'm not going to defend uh, George Will, but the point is that Bill O'Reilly himself is a hack because when he says to Trump that Putin is a killer, what is he trying to say? We should not, we, that I took in this it case, as, the I, American president, not engage with the rest of the world? Look. I uh, took it as, a, as an insult on Putin personally, not even on his politics, that the man personally is a killer. That's right. That's what. But, but here, let's, this is what has happened. We have people like O'Reilly and the whole media has dumbed down the discussion to these, you know, five-tenths word phrases. So you have this whole history, 20th century history. Franklin Delano Roosevelt dealt with Stalin in defeating Hitler, right? Franklin Delano Roosevelt dealt with a man who had in his hand blood of 50 million people. Richard Nixon dealt with Mao Zedong. He went to China. That was the great strategic move. Again, the man had a hundred million death in his hand. You know, when you put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> so what? I mean, we are dealing with. Let me think. Are, uh, you're, yeah. de you're dealing with Middle Eastern countries in this case, or just, African just... countries. Who are you going to deal with? You know, in any relationship, any relationship. You and I are sitting and talking here. There are two sides to the equation, right? You, you know, that's fascinating because I think what Bill O'Reilly is referring to is the so-called, um, or the alleged uh, 23, I think is the number, journalists who have been assassinated, uh, killed under suspicious circumstances since Putin came to power, most notably uh, Anna Politkovskaya. Yeah, uh, you yeah. Know, all of that is true. All of that is true. So, but what so was twenty-three deaths versus yeah, versus a hundred million? But, yes. but 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 the point is, what is it being established? This may be a polemical debate taking place. Fine. Trump has clearly said that we are not going to make an enemy of Russia. There are other priorities in the world, and he's rethinking the foreign policy. One of the thinking is about is that Trump has said that America is going to come back. We are not going to be engaged in the world in the way that, you know, we have gone about it for the last 30 years. So his foreign policy is in a position of being shaped now. He, his secretary of state has just been cleared. 
you know, and he has taken position. You can see where these people are coming from, back, his background. His foreign policy team has the Secretary of State, who has worked with Putin and with others, and his Secretary of Defense, four-star general, and his Homeland Security, a four-star general. These are guys who have been dealing with killers, <laughs> right? And his main priority in the Middle East is to crush ISIS. So who is he going to deal with here? Each of the uh, uh, Arab... He hasn't got much choice other than picking the lesser of a given number of evils when it comes down That's, to it, isn't it? That, exactly. Just like we do when we go to the polls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. yeah. <laughs> he had the attack in Ottawa on the parliament and the threat to behead our prime minister. Uh, I had uh, made a suggestion that perhaps we need a temporary moratorium from countries that fund and support terrorism so we could figure out how to deal with this issue. So, um, you know, I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again, that it's not a ban and it's not on Muslims, it's not about Islam, it is about a radical jihadist ideology. Uh, which we know exists, uh, which has created havoc all over the world and especially in the West. And, um, you know, if I need to clean up my house, uh, if I believe that there are, um, you know, um, problems, I need to close the doors for a while, sort it out, and then open them up again. So it's not such a bad thing, but there is so much hysteria and there are such knee-jerk reactions surrounding this when, um, you know, this is the election promise that Mr. Trump had made. Uh, 18 months ago, so all he is doing is implementing it. So he is following through on what he promised. Raheel, aren't you concerned, though, that uh, this is there, it's more about the perception? I mean, you look at world leaders from uh, the UK, even here at Canada, it is being perceived as a Muslim ban. We call it what you will, that's how leaders are seeing it. Well, you know, this is not necessarily how it is being perceived. I mean, it's up to people and media to portray it that way. But the visceral anti-Trump uh, rallies and that movement, which is so heavily funded, is uh, creating this hysteria. And we need to have, you know, take a deep breath, step back talk with reason and logic, which is why, as a Muslim woman, as a practicing observant Muslim, want to put this out there, that this is about challenging extremism and promoting dialogue. Uh, so, you know, why, if President Trump wanted this as a Muslim ban, you and I know that he is not politically correct. He's not afraid <laughs> to say what he feels and thinks. He would have said this is a blanket Muslim ban. Sanctuary cities, a term that you don't actually hear in Canada. Councillor Tanya Park has said that she wants to discuss making London a sanctuary city. She hasn't outlined what that would look like to her. To talk about this, I wanted to welcome to the program Freedom Party of Ontario leader Paul McKeever. Paul, great to talk to you again. Thanks for your time today. Oh, quite quite uh, happy to do it, Manny. So when we talk about sanctuary cities here, right, this is really a, a lipstick on a pig name, I think, isn't it? Yeah, this is uh, basically uh, local councillors trying to score some political points uh, by uh, proposing that the whole federal regime of immigration and refugee status is circumvented 
so that they can allow and help people uh, avoid getting de- deported. That's what it's all about. If you're in Canada and you're a refugee, then apply for refugee status. If you're in Canada and you're an immigrant, apply for immigration. Uh, if you are hiding in the bushes and not applying, what does that tell you? You're not, you know you're not eligible. And why are you not eligible? Well, because either you've already applied and you've been rejected, or one of the other reasons could be you've, you've uh, you know, in another country probably committed a crime or a uh, human rights violation, which is, a, you know, that's a, that strikes you out. You don't get refugee status if you're involved in that kind of stuff. So our counselors are saying, hey, who cares if a person's committed a crime or a human rights violation in another country? We're going to give all these people the, the coverage uh, that they need, which to me is a conspiracy between the, the town and, and, the, and the folks who are trying to stay here illegally to circumvent the federal system. See, a municipality has absolutely no legal authority except what is given to it uh, by the province, mm-hmm. pursuant to statute. So, to my mind, when, when these cities take it upon themselves to in- interfere with the immigration and refugee status system, which is what they're doing, and they're, in, in fact, helping out people who, who have no legal right to be here, uh, in, in violation of federal law, I would argue, uh, they are doing something that they have no authority to do. This motion by Tanya Park and, and uh, the rest of the councillors the other day, I would argue, is completely without any lawful authority. The, the province doesn't delegate to the cities um, the, 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 uh, the uh, right to make policy or law concerning uh, covering up for illegals. That's not a legitimate uh, function of the municipal government. No, but it's, it's also a recurring theme in London where council seems to want to delve into these virtue signaling exercises and these right. policies that fall outside of the municipal mandate. You are listening to Just Right Broadcasting Around the World and Online. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support, and while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts. We're in studio with Salim Mansour, and Salim, much has been said recently, in particular by one of your colleagues, Rahil Raza, and uh, of course our own Paul McKeever, have been talking about the whole issue of the immigration restrictions as well as this idea of sanctuary provinces, countries, and cities. And this has just exploded recently in our own community here. We're, in, we're, we're living in Canada, in London, Ontario, and it's been a huge discussion and, and row over these very issues. What is your interpretation of this? My immediate reaction is this is what is virtue signaling to the rest of the world. You know, we, we now have such a bad neighbor in the United States under President Trump that it, uh, Trump administration and what Trump represents goes against everything that is civil and human uh, and good and virtuous. And... Uh, people who are suffering in America as a result of that, if they have to leave America, we welcome them with open arm. Well, the downside of it would be if Trump is so evil and so bad and those people are leaving America and they find shelter uh, in sanctuary city London and sanctuary province uh, Ontario, the downside that you have to then think through, what would that mean then to the Ontarians and the Londoners who, for any number of reasons, from business to personal, needs to cross a long, undefended border, the trade that goes on. And so the bad guy, Trump, might then start policing our border. I've written the same thing, is that as soon as Justin Trudeau suggested that we now uh, redouble our efforts to bring in Syrian refugees and refugees from other countries, predominantly Muslim countries, predominantly the seven countries that Trump has uh, highlighted, I can predict 
that it will be much tougher for us to cross the border because now apparently we're taking in the people that the United States has said, we don't want these people. But if you're going to take them, then we have no choice but to stop you at the border. I wasn't even thinking of people from the United States coming up. I thought this could, because the U.S. itself has these sanctuary cities, which Trump wanted to end. So they've already been practicing this. There must be some problems associated with those areas. Would you be in agreement with Paul McKeever when he says that this idea of sanctuary cities is really a way of saying that whoever's promoting it is actually breaking federal, federal law, federal, federal immigration, and, and trying to get around the system to let undocumented people into the country? Yeah, exactly. Most people argue these things without thinking about the consequences and the unintended consequences of any action. That's because they're busy virtue signaling. signaling. (laughs) So now comes the question of uh, the real problem in America, uh, which has grown in dimension over the last eight years of the Obama administration, and Trump is determined to fix it. The uh, undocumented uh, residents and aliens in America is, is, is again a nice virtuous word. The fact is they are illegal aliens. They have no right to be in America. The simple principle that people don't want to face up to is that nobody except for citizens and those who are naturalized citizens, and that is a congressional responsibility, has a right to enter or leave the United States of America or for that matter, any country. Every country that has a border polices that border and secures that border. So the sanctuary cities are, again, virtue signaling that you undocumented aliens can come here and we will protect you. But protect you from what? Protect you from our own laws, the federal laws. It's it's (laughs) funny because I I find that this whole idea of immigration has gotten to the point where it's being discussed in this strange vacuum where everybody seems to believe that every person living on planet Earth has a right to live in America exactly. somehow and can, and just walk in the door because, and then they always cite the Statue of Liberty, give us your poor, you know, and all that. Yes. How can they... And that Statue of Liberty was not about that poor. That was a poem that was attached to it later on. Yeah. The Statue of Liberty was a gift of the French people mm-hmm. on the first centenary of American Republic. It was supposed to arrive in 1876 to commemorate America's first century. It arrived a decade later because they couldn't get it in. Then the was there a thirty percent duty on it? In eighteen, <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, right. There, 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 there wasn't in those days the tax system that exists. But anyhow, it arrived in 1880, and. That poem was put in there in 1903 or 1904, the Emma Lazarus poem, as a way to do fundraising. And so that poem, if it's a left-wing poem, bring in your huddled mask. But that was not part of the Statue of Liberty. The way it were, it is Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. It is a celebration of freedom, which is what America represents. So America is from the from the day one, that is the, the struggle of America and then the establishment of the republic is that this is a land of law and order. Take the case of Canada. What does Johnny MacDonald and his people, the founding father of Canada, said order when and good the government. BNA, BNA was enacted? Peace, water, and good government. Good government, yes. That's right. So it's a it's a land of law laws, and immigration is part of a legal system. Who comes to America? 
who is an American and how one becomes an American. These are all laid out in the statutes. The issue came up with Raheel Raza in her various interviews, and the issue was arose, why was Saudi Arabia not included <laughs> in that list? And she agreed that it should have been, but was under the assumption that that's because Saudi Arabia is at least cooperating with the Trump administration, but the other six countries are not, and that is why they have targeted those six countries. Is that seven countries? Or, or se- is it seven? Is is that is, does that make sense to you? Uh, it, it, yes, and it can be expanded. I mean, that's just one uh, off the cuff. Uh, is, is, uh, it about, is it about them cooperating, or is it a broader? No, I think there's a much more fundamental issue here. Oil. Uh, let's let's bring it out. There Oil. Oil. The, the, no, none of that. None of that. Uh, and and here is the, the executive order I'm sitting with it in my hand. We can uh, we don't have the time to parse it, but let's uh, put it on the table. Seven countries have been named. In, in the executive order, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, Sudan, and Somalia. Okay, You take out Iran, all the other six countries are failed states. In other words, they have no institutional government working. Ah, that's a big issue. That's the issue. Holy cow. These seven states... Okay, sorry, Iran, put Iran around. Six states, they are failed states. And these uh, states were identified by the previous administration. So Trump has not added anything new to the list. Correct, yes. Okay, so these, the the, the rationale of the naming of the states, which were previous administration had set it up, this is very well documented in in extensive hearings in the in the Congress, that all the intelligence agencies, there are sixteen intelligence agencies, their representatives, when questioned, pointed out, including the FBI director James Comey, that we do not have any records from these countries. So if you're going to put some get something out of the computer, you have to be able to put it in. The information sure. there has to be input before there's an output, and as James Comey said, and I'm paraphrasing him, what you input into the computer network is what we are imputing, inputing it. There's no ripple from that part of the world, so we're getting back our own information. Mm-hmm. We have no new information. We have no information that with which we can verify and check who these people are. That makes sense. Okay, so the question of again this left wing and other anti-Trump people raising false flag fake news. Pakistan, which is a terrorist-producing country, Saudi Arabia, which is a terrorist-producing country, including Egypt, which had been a terrorist-producing country, which is now... And the home of the Muslim Brotherhood. The home of the Muslim Brotherhood. All these countries are not failed states. So you can check the government. You can hold them responsible. And by naming them, they're sending the warning to these countries that, you know, if you don't put your house in order, if you don't get your our records from you that is correct, things are going to come down upon you too, okay? That's the one. Then there's the question of Iran. Iran has been in a state of war with the United States for the last 38 years. Again, you talked about amnesia, so let's remind ourselves. 1979, the Islamic Revolution takes place, and Khomeini comes to power, and that regime is in power. And what does Khomeini say? That we are going to defeat the great Satan, 
Who is the great Satan? United States of America. We're going to defeat the great Satan. We're going to drive the great Satan out of this place. And we're going to annihilate the little Satan. Who's the little Israel. Satan? Israel. So what do they do right from day one? The hostage crisis. The war that Iran has waged in Iraq. The killers that they have sent out, the terrors that they have exploded, put forward. So it is not a failed state, but it is in a state of war. Now, Obama administration was not willing to recognize the reality of Iran's declaration of war. In fact, Obama went the other way. It went to accommodate Iran and made a deal with Iran. So now Trump administration has come in and says, no way. We are going to hold you responsible now. So you take the seventh state, put Iran aside. Iran is a state at war with United States, and it will not get the same treatment. Mm-hmm. You see, again, we are back to equation. You have declared war, so we are going to reciprocate accordingly. And the six states are failed states. I'm sorry. You are. About what? What's hurting you so much? So am I. I'm sorry for all the people who spent their lives on this project. We were going to save the whole world. Some dream. What project? Do you mean sanctuary? Do you know what sanctuary really means? I don't mean a place you're trying to find. I mean the definition of the word, sanctuary, a place of refuge and protection. That's what this was supposed to be. to make sure that the BBC and ITN get good coverage on the White House lawn, you know, mm. close to shot of me and the President. Excellent. And well, then there'll be more photo coverage inside the White House, just me and the President alone together. Oh, splendid. Well, and then co- there'll be coverage of me and the President <laughs> at the start of the talks, that's mm-hmm. the next day. Yeah, excellent. And then after that, the President say goodbye to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, with any luck, he'll take my elbow with his left hand, you know, like, like this. He, mm-hmm. he did that with the West German Chancellor. West German Chancellor, yes, indeed. <laughs> any chance of ensuring that beforehand well, with the embassy? Could be difficult, Prime Minister. Now, may I ask you to look at the cabinet agenda? I don't know what we have all these embassies for. <laughs> I thought we were going to discuss scrapping Trident. Well, indeed we were, Prime Minister, but I thought in the first instance that you might think it wiser to go into it thoroughly. I've learned from the American ambassador, informally of course, that uh, they would be very upset if we were to cancel Trident and not order another of their nuclear missiles instead. There's going to be some tough talking. I might just as well have it out with the President when I meet him. Yes, well, that's just the point, Prime Minister. Now, as you know, the agenda of your meeting with the President must be agreed in advance. I mean, you can't just go all the way over there for a chat. Why not? Well, you, um, you might not think of anything to say. One of the first things that uh, Donald Trump did after assuming presidency was meet with Theresa May of Britain. And there was a lot of talk about Trump working with the Western nations and trying to create an alliance so that they're all working together. Do you see this as being a successful effort on Trump's part? Yeah, I think so. I think I just mentioned a little while ago uh, the left 
engages in virtue signaling, and our premier in Ontario is doing that. But thank well, you, well, city. The UK's Jeremy uh, Corbyn uh, so, wanted. So on the other side, too, there is signaling <laughs> taking Same place. Thing. And and it is very instructive that in the very first week after Trump's inauguration, the Prime Minister of Britain, Theresa May, came down to the United States and then went to Washington uh, to meet with Trump and uh, they had a number of uh, discussion. What I see happening, and here I would make the distinction, you say Western nation, I would say not Western nation, Anglo-Americans. Okay, yeah. Uh, I I use it very broadly. I I know, but let's sharpen it for your audience. This is a very clear distinction that is being made because what Trump signaled, and he spoke about it, is how much he supports Brexit and how he is going to extend to Britain a free trade deal that Britain in some ways is going to lose with uh, having left Brexit. So he welcomes that. Uh, the man who led the Brexit campaign, Nigel Farage, was welcomed. Nigel Farage spoke at one of Trump's rally during the election campaign. So where Trump is going back, it seems to me there is some, again, uh, reflections and connections uh, here of what happened some 30 years ago with Ronald Reagan coming to office in 19. 19- 81, winning the 1980 election, and uh, his relationship with Maggie Thatcher, the Iron Lady, and the support that Ronald Reagan extended to Maggie Thatcher in his first years in office, which was the Falkland War. Many people were commenting that May sounded very, quote-unquote, Thatcherite in her response to uh, Jeremy Corbyn's wanting to keep Donald Trump out of Britain <laughs> for his yeah. visit. And she, she went right back into the long-standing history of, of Britain and, and the United States. It was quite, I was going to say presidential, but in her case, it wouldn't be that. Leader, ministerial. Woman with an iron spine. Yeah, I mean, again, you can see, I mean, this full Monty that uh, the left has gone is not limited to the United States. It's around the world. This, this has taken place. Uh, and what is happening is all the established consensus of the last 30 years post-Cold War is now being questioned by Trump. And Brexit was the beginning of that in Britain. The British people voted to get out of European Union, which basically represent that countries are sovereign states and people elect their representative to make laws for them not some alien body sitting somewhere out there. Here in the, in the case of the European Union, Brussels will make law for England, you know. Same thing applies. United States will make laws for United States, not some world body sitting in the United Nations, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and whether it be New York or Geneva. Yeah, I think there is, there is a, a quite a good argument to be made that, the post-Cold War world, which is now pretty much fluid, and it has to come together in some shape and form, the the response of the American administration, the four administration, George Herbert Walker Bush, Bill Clinton, George Walker Bush, and Obama, that is the four administration, roughly 28 years, uh, three, dec- uh, three decades, was globalism, open borders, one world, that is, 
United Nations, international law. The George Soros vision of As, governance. That's right. Globalism. Globalism. And Trump administration represents the counterpoint, as does Brexit. That is, return to nation states, national sovereignty, national interest. And each state will calculate its relationship with others based upon its own interests. So that's how it should be. That's, that, to me, well, is my is, image of globalism. <laughs> that, that's traditional, yeah. traditional politics, right? That's realism. And I think there is a natural tendency of the United States to provide that leadership as an English-speaking country to the English-speaking world. So you distinguish between the ang Anglosphere and Western nations in general. Why, why that distinction? I think the traditions of the two, Anglo-sphere and the non-Anglo, is quite different. I mean, look at it. I mean, we, 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 we talk about the European history. The, the democratic experience of Britain goes all the way back to Magna Carta, mm -hmm. rule of law, restraining the monarch. And in this 800 years history, because we celebrated the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta in 2015, we see a development, a growth, and a way that the countries have come about quite distinct from the European experience. That the European experience is an experience of mob, whether it's the mob of the left or mob of the right. You know, we've heard it from our own uh, Euro correspondent, Paul Lambert, who's lived in uh, various countries in Europe, who said that he found it, it was impossible to find any organization or people of like mind that is one who shares an individualistic approach to politics over in Europe. It is unfounded. You cannot find it. it. It's just never existed historically, and it doesn't exist today. Whereas in Britain, the individual in, in, in politics has played very prominently. Precisely. And the Anglo-American experience is about freedom. The European experience is about equality. So if, if the three principles of the French Revolution, equality, liberty, fraternity, where you put the emphasis on. And you can chart the history about here. It is not about individual so rights. It is about status. It's about class. Status. It's about group. So that's why I say it is about mob, you know. The Bismarckian Revolution in the sense of the making of modern Germany. It's not mm -hmm. about individual freedom. It was about pulling together all the principalities into creating one strong Persian-type German state, the Wilhelm state, Wilhelmine state. Same thing with the French, you know. It is the state. But in the case of Britain, it is not the state. It is the people, you know. And that idea that has gone worldwide. Take another example, I mean, here. Take both United States or North America, north of the Rio Grande, and South America, south of the Rio Grande, are immigrant society, minus the na native population, the aboriginal, immigrants from Europe. But then there are two different outcomes. The North American experience is about freedom. The Pilgrim Father, the Pilgrim Progress, that's the mythology, but that's the mythology that you're trying to activate. The south of the Rio Grande is the experience of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is a corporate body. Protestant Revolution is about individual. And if the you individual look at stands, you know, before God. 
And who know? are the predominant immigrants of North America or uh, north of the Rio Grande versus south of Rio Grande? Exactly. Spain and Portugal south, England uh, and Germany. Germany uh, and from that... that, uh, that Sweden, uh, yeah, uh, Scandinavian countries. Western remote little place, you know, yeah. Holland, Denmark yes. and that, you know. So back to it is protestantism it is the protestant ethic mm -hmm. it is the individual and south of the grande is the catholic experience you look around the world wherever catholicism catholicism prevails it is the corporate interest prevail it's also extremely poor it is, uh, it is poor <laughs> and it is totalitarian yes you know it takes very little to become totalitarian. It is, look at what is happening to Brazil, collapsing. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the so Argentinian experience. Look, 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 look at, at the, all of the experience of the South relationship America. between the United States and Mexico today. I mean, South it's, it's Protestant versus Catholicism. Preci precisely. And, and that is where the difference lies between the Anglo-American and the Western experience. And where does Canada fit into this picture then? We, 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 we are going to be, uh, in, in a philosophical basis, we are going to be under tremendous tension going forward. I think this is the 50-year agenda that we are faced with, that is from Pierre Trudeau to now, that is the making of a country that is more corporatist than freedom-loving. Mm -hmm. Trudeau has also been in contact with George Soros, I understand, in bringing in tens of thousands of more immigrants and re so-called refugees from uh, Middle Eastern Muslim countries, deliberately, I think, for George Soros's part, to help destroy what Canada uh, was founded on, which was, as you say, an Anglo foundation. It is the same thing in the United States. The whole argument about open border and immigration with the Democrats challenge, the unspoken context of that is that through this open immigration, you dilute the concept of the United States as a republic based upon individual rights. And I pointed this out in my 2012 presentation in the parliament, in the House of Common Committee hearing on immigration. I pointed out that you cannot have a situation where you bring in people from illiberal culture into a liberal society, and then you maintain this principle of multiculturalism that all cultures are equal and hope that the liberal system will prevail. It will not. He's adding more and more water to the wine. And at one point, it's no longer going to be wine. And, and this is a very decided policy of the left to create that situation because they cannot otherwise win election. The heart of America still cherishes the values of the American Republic. So if you, if you dilute that heart, then that is the end of any possibility for a freedom-loving president to be elected. And I think this is exactly why Obama chose Tennessee, the buckle of the Bible Belt of the United States, to be a, a, a sanctuary for Muslim immigration. Yes, yes. And this is what's happening in San Francisco. This is what's happening in Chicago. Just again, remember, California elected Ronald Reagan twice. California elected Richard Nixon. California cannot now elect a dog catcher who is a Republican. <laughs> 
Well, Salim, our hour has gone by again very quickly. But I guess the future remains to be seen. And part of that future is our return next week, one week from now, as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, act right, think right, do right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. I understand that if this proposal of yours were to be put to the Americans, there would be a slight change of plan. What change of plan? Well, your meeting would not be with the president. You would be entertained by the vice president. The vice president? The vice president? How you can't be serious. I'm afraid so, Prime Minister. The vice president? But even Botswana was met by the president. I saw it. <laughs> Botswana hadn't just cancelled an order for Trident. I'm sure they'll do it very gracefully, Prime Minister. Explain that the President had catar or bruised his thumb or something. <laughs> Fallen asleep, perhaps. 